temperatures rising gradually during the New Year holidays. Uh, the red fire danger warning is in force right now. And currently at the observatory, the temperature is 15 Celsius, 56% relative humidity. Uh, let's just take a final look at the ASX 200. It's currently down 1% at 7,014. And the Nikkei 225 is currently also down 1% at 26,074. Uh, this is James Ross. I'll be back with Money Talk tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. It's the best of back chat in a moment. But first, the news headlines. Here's Andrew. Thank you, James. The government has announced a further relaxation of COVID measures with the scrapping of the vaccine pass, all social distancing measures, and PCR tests for inbound travelers. Close contacts of COVID patients will no longer have to quarantine, but the wearing of face masks remains compulsory. Chief Executive John Lee announced that the relaxation of measures will take effect from today. Asked why the authorities were scrapping anti-pandemic measures amid a surge in COVID cases, Mr. Lee said this was not a sudden or rapid decision. He said the measures, including the vaccine pass, had already achieved their goals. Everything has been progressing according to plan. And of course, we have to assess for each measure that we are implemented, the return and the cost. We have pushed up the vaccination rate to such a good level, almost 94%. So I want to tell the world that, well, this is Hong Kong. Hong Kong is very normal now. That is why it has come to the right time that we will do without the vaccination pass. Meanwhile, the chief executive says the government has demanded Japanese authorities withdraw a decision to restrict flights from Hong Kong to only four of its airports. Mr. Lee added that officials have been in talks with the Japanese authorities on how to help stranded passengers. We have indicated to the Japanese government that we are disappointed with the arrangement because we think that Hong Kong flights should be allowed to use not just these four airports. And we have also approached the Consul General of Japan in Hong Kong to relate that message. Besides that, our ETO in Tokyo is trying to help anybody who needs assistance, so is uh, the immigration. We will stand by for any extra request that Hong Kong citizens may have, so we will offer our help. Education Secretary Christine Choi says full-day face-to-face classes will return gradually from February. Ms. Choi said secondary schools will resume full-time in-person classes from February 1, while those for primary schools and kindergartens will come back from February 15. She added pupils no longer have to present a vaccine pass upon entry, and they will be allowed to take part in extracurricular activities. However, the minister said school children and teaching staff still have to do rapid antigen tests every day before going to school until the end of January. A four-year fraud trial has ended in Singapore with long jail terms for two people who masterminded a huge share trading scam. It wiped nearly six billion dollars off the value of the Singapore Stock Exchange. The BBC's Steve Jackson reports. John Sochi Wen from Malaysia and his girlfriend Kwa Su Ling from Singapore used their knowledge of financial markets to inflate the share prices of three companies. They set up dozens of trading accounts and borrowed large sums of money to manipulate stock prices so they could cash in. The scheme came to light in 2013 when prices collapsed, significantly damaging investor confidence in Singapore's stock exchange. The judge said the scheme had caused immense harm, giving So a 36-year jail sentence and Kwa 20 years. 
The Israeli parliament has passed a controversial bill entrenching government control over the police. It comes ahead of uh, the swearing-in of Benjamin Netanyahu's new administration on Thursday. The law passed by 61 votes to 55. It was a condition set by a far-right Jewish party for joining the coalition government. The party's leader and incoming security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, said it was an important step. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir, ministers, lawmakers. We made history for the state of Israel, for a strong police, for security, on the roads, in the streets. Thank you very, very, very much. President Volodymyr Zelensky, in his end-of-year speech to Parliament, has said Ukraine's resistance against Russian aggression has made it a global leader. Mr. Zelensky told lawmakers that Ukraine's defiance of the Kremlin had united the European Union and helped the West rediscover its values. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to the Best of Back Chat with me, Janice Wong. On today's program, we're continuing to look back at some of the most interesting discussions we've had over the past year. And this, of course, includes the first ever recruitment drive by China's space agency in Hong Kong and the suggestion of a baby bonus to help address the city's low birth rate. But first, let's revisit our discussion on how Hong Kong plans to go big on mega events. After the success of the Rugby Sevens tournament last month, Hong Kong's biggest international outdoor music festival, Clock and Flap, is set to return in March next year. Kenny Bolo, the head of partnerships at Magnetic Asia, who is organizing the event, told me and Danny Gittings earlier she will try her best to put on a good show. We are very, very excited, um, but at the same time, when you're talking about planning, um, and March is actually just around the corner, so everything is uh, go, go, go. And uh, we, we will try our best to uh, put on the best show again um, in, in March next year. What kind of arrangements uh, have you got from the government? I mean, are, are you going to be able to allow people to move around or are they going to have to sit down? Are you going to be able to allow food and drink? Yes. Um, we, I, I guess we are in a, 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 a better position in terms of, you know, the... Uh, pandemic or epidemic concerns and um, so and also having a very successful rugby sevens as well so um, yes we we allow to have um, the, the normal free movement uh, format um, at the festival and we will also be um, allowed to, to provide FMV for for the audience as well but of course um, since we're still under uh, certain restrictions, so we will do our best and work with the government to make it as close to the, the normal clock and blood experience as we can. Can you give us an idea of uh, what performers or artists uh, we can expect at the event? Any big names? Of course. Lots of people ask me the same question every year, but my answer is very simple. You will buy a ticket, and this is for me. <laughs> so it, you, you will see. But um, this is our strategy since day one anyway. We, we always have attractive names. We always have exciting names and then also interesting names that for people to discover. So stay tuned. It will come out very soon. <laughs> All right, so um, Clock and Flap is uh, making a comeback. We uh, just had the Rugby Sevens. And, of course, uh, next month we have uh, the Cyclothon. Um, Mr. Free, how significant would you say the return of these uh, international events is for Hong Kong? In terms of the global brand reputation of Hong Kong, it's, 
it's very important because we've positioned ourselves as a well, as the events capital of Asia but you can't really live up to that name if you don't have events so it is good to see them coming back. And uh, our listener, Richard, he just uh, mentioned about uh, the uh, Mega Arts and Cultural Events Fund announced uh, in the CE's maiden policy address. Um, Ms. Baller, do you think uh, that will help uh, attract international and mega arts and cultural events to come here? It depends. I think, uh, one, we are still um, on top of the normal time-consuming procedures to, to actually get to the bottom of the funding. And you really have to have someone who's dedicated to, you know, look after this side of things and then in, in order to fulfill all the criteria. And, and then, um, and also on the, on the other side, if, if we are still under um, a certain amount of restriction and it, it's not going to be a full experience and organizing events, big or small or, or large scales, and it has got its own usual challenges and hurdles that you need to get through already and then on top you you still you have these extra uh, restrictions to consider. You sound a bit hesitant Miss Barlow that you, you sort of feel that the uh, applying for this funding you, you sort of feel that it will involve a lot of work and a lot of bureaucracy perhaps is that your hesitation there? Yes well I, I guess it's it's never it's never easy and straightforward and you know you look at the, the thickness of the form you look at the presentations to understand you know each fund and how does it work are, are we eligible and and then of course the process of it is not straightforward basically okay um well yes. brett, brett free you worked in the hong kong government for more than 20 years so you probably know more than your fair share about government bureaucracy mm-hmm. is is there a danger of red tapes or styling these kind of uh, well-meaning initiatives well in a, in a word, yes, and, and that is also something which needs to be um, looked at and addressed. Um, the application and compliance uh, procedures, if you're talking about funding, are quite onerous, as Kenny just said. Um, for the Mega Events Fund, I think they've, they've said $60 million for four events, so that's $15 million an event. Um, and I'd probably hazard a guess that they've got a pretty good idea as to where that money's going to go. So uh, this idea or notion that you know, people can apply and get a million here or two million here, I don't think that's going to happen with that fund. I think they've got in mind probably three or four events already where perhaps they should have had funding support before and now they're going to get funding support. When I was in uh, government in different jobs, I did sit on the Mega Events Fund and I did sit on the major sports events uh, fund. Mega Events Fund had $100 million, if you remember. Um, it was a good idea, but the, as Kenny mentioned, it was the problem with it, with it was just too, it was too onerous in terms, of the, in terms of the application procedures. And you do need people pretty much full-time dedicated to the application process and then, and then afterwards the compliance process in terms of the deliverables you need to give the government in, in return for securing the money. So they need to, I think, look at uh, the, the red tape, as you mentioned, to make it a bit more simple and streamlined for people uh, to apply. Major Sports Events Committee, actually, it is... Um, developed and evolved over the years quite a bit and there's a review undergoing uh, at the moment and I think that's good. They, at the 
people in the sports sector know and understand how that fund works well and the application procedures are transparent. They're online, you know what you're getting in for when you uh, apply for money there. So that's good. But as a general observation, yes, they should try to make things a bit easier for people um, because otherwise you spend all this time applying for money, which you might or you might not end up getting. Looking at this fund, the government wants to uh, use it to help Hong Kong uh, turn into an arts and a cultural metropolis. Of course, uh, money is important, uh, but what else do we need, Mr Rogers? <laughs> well, we, we could use some more people. We, we've lost yeah. a lot. We've lost a lot. So so over, over COVID, so, so many people... Went off to uh, to to Dubai, uh, Middle East. Uh, some of our some of our top talent, as far as in the events industry, has um, also many um, uh, you know to to the U.S. Singapore has just swallowed up whole companies. Um, you know, we we hope that they will come back. Uh, but well, on the other are, hand, are you the, seeing any sign? I mean, in banking, there's start at least people are claiming that people are starting to come back. Are you seeing any any sign of that yet in in your in not your yet. area? Not yet. I mean, I mean, there is, there is hope. People are people are talking to. They're like, oh, good, that, that's great. But you know, once you're, you know, once, like I say, we're not we're not uh, big banks. We we don't have you know we're not giant uh, giant companies. We're mostly individuals who are working for other clients. And once you have your client base set up, you know that you tend to tend to need to stay stay near them. You know, one of the things that I think. Um, Many people don't realize, especially if, if you're not in the industry, you, the amount of work, the amount of details, the amount of time it takes to really stage a good event, good, safe uh, experience for people. The more time you have, the more that you can think about it, the more that you can look at all of the safety aspects, look at your risk management, the more that you can you know, come up with creative ideas that you can do really neat stuff with. Um, if you don't have time, then it's very much, you know, cut and paste. Let's do that because, you know, we have these props. We have these, have this equipment. Um, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm sure Cockenflap is dealing with right now, um, like Kenny mentioned in, in her first bit, it's, it's March. They usually have a whole year to kind of work on this with no, with no restrictions. This time, you know, they've got... <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah. at, at the moment, I'm already thinking about what, what's next uh, after this call that I have to continue working on it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's you know, the, the timelines are really, really short. So if you have a great experienced team who have, you know, can, can put things together, you don't need quite so much time. But if you're bringing in, you know, new talent, people that have just got out of school, people that don't have a lot of experience, you also need to kind of nurture them and to teach them. So, you know, as our timelines get shorter, we're going to start to see, you know, a lot more, a lot more issues there. That was Robert Rogers, a live event consultant, designer and producer. Kenny Barlow, the head of partnerships at Magnetic Asia. And Brett Free, principal of BMF Consulting and former deputy director of the government's information services department. Now, apart from the return of mega events, Hong Kong has also been hosting many exhibits over the past year. From rare dinosaur fossils at the Science Museum to a very Instagrammable 8-metre-tall gummy bear sculpture. Andrew Work and I spoke to American street artist Wispy, who created the sculpture, and Adrian Chung, the curator of the exhibit. Wispy first told us what the gummy bear looks like. So essentially it's eight meters tall. If you could take the gummy bear, essentially, uh, juxtapose on Department of Corrections, 
holding a mugshot plaque um, with uh, almost dinosaur-like horns on its head and a large scale uh, on its back with a tail and its signature Hong Kong red with a giant LCD screen as the plaque, which allows us to kind of uh, integrate different visuals into the installation and the clock tower. Um, it was quite difficult to transport here. Uh, the primary material is fiberglass. It was built in full and then deconstructed and then reconstructed on site, which took about four days or so uh, to put back together. And um, yeah, so now we've got our eight meter tall standing uh, gummy bear standing in front of the uh, the clock tower. And uh, you've made uh, many uh, gummy bear sculptures in the past, and this this one is uh, different because, uh, like you just mentioned, it's got an LED screen. Why why is there an LED screen this time? So about. Two and a half, three years ago, I got heavy into the digital and NFT space, and I wanted to find a way to start to evolve my artwork and bridge the gap between the two mediums. And this I saw as a perfect opportunity to do something new, and to allow us kind of um, something diverse that we could we could show to to the community. So that's why I wanted to take the opportunity to try something new for the first time, and um, uh, with such an audience and a platform to see it. But you said it was a crazy idea from Adrian Chung. Adrian, what inspired you to reach out? I mean, of all the artists and all the gin joints in the world, why why Wisby? Why did you have to bring Wisby to Hong Kong? Uh, Good morning. Well, thank you for that question. Um, Well, honestly, I think, number one, who doesn't love gummy bears? (laughs) I think that's that's one of the the key. Um, And secondly, I thought Josh's work um, would be very suitable for a public art installation. I think it's very key, one of the key messages as a curator for FIF as well, the First Initiative Foundation, is really to allow people to understand that art is not just found in museums, in exhibitions, and in private collections. We wanted to bring art to everywhere, to everyone. And I think the gummy bear as a signature work um, can be as simple as you like it. It's just simply as simple as you like gummy bears, or it can be as complex as Josh has um, meaning behind it, right? So I think... That's what we thought it would be very suited um, for such a for such an exhibition. Basically, um, we wanted to cross kind of um, the divide between all the generations. They were from kids, the young, and all the like. So I think that's really the the, the main purpose of this exhibition. Right, and Mr. Chen, why put the gummy bear next to uh, the Chim Shou Chui Clock Tower? Why not the uh, like Golden Bahania Square or, or the Peak? Uh, yes. Yeah, so. I think the clock tower is uh, really serendipitous. Uh, we found this place, um, as you know, the Hong Kong clock tower is a very iconic historical monument. It has over 100 years of history. And, and we, we know that from uh, Wispy's uh, artwork as well, that he also has uh, a lot of meaning behind his gummy bear sculptures, which basically translates in a simple form, but Josh can probably, Wispy can also um, relate on that, is about innocence lost. It's about the growth of a person. And we know that as, the clock tower, it's overseeing a lot of our history of Hong Kong and, you know, as time passes by and we felt that time as a concept would really meld the two historical building and Wispy's um, art together. So we thought that was a quite a good match. Is that the message, like Adrian said, Wispy? Yeah, so the, the message, um, in short, behind the Vandal Gummy series is Innocence Lost. And it's juxtaposing the innocence of the gummy bear against Department of Corrections to create a narrative of kind of what happened. And I don't like to tell people what to think, especially when it comes to artwork, but I like to create a platform for a dialogue and pose a question for a story that they can create on their own. And so the date on the bear represents a significant turning point in my life 
And I like people to think of a day in their life that was significant that may have turned or changed them being exactly where they are today, or maybe they wouldn't be if it wasn't for that day. That was American street artist Wisby and Adrian Chung, the curator of the exhibit. And if you haven't had a chance to see it yet, the gummy bear sculpture will be on display in Chim Sha Cho until this Sunday. Let's now turn to something different but just as exciting. It's the recruitment drive by China's space agency, which is searching for two payload specialists from Hong Kong and Macau. Jim Gould first asked Yu Hong Yu, an associate professor at the University of Science and Technology's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace, how significant this development is for Hong Kong and for institutions dealing with space research here. Okay, that's very important and kind of exciting news because uh, for mainland, majorly previous kind of this mission is open to military kind of missions and all the kind of astronauts come from military kind of trained persons. But right now, our space station is kind of try to open to the public and academics. So this, this produce opportunity for all the people participate that. Mm. In that case, and Hong Kong and Macau, all people can have the opportunity to participate this mission. That is a fantastic opportunity. And they will have the chance to boost up this uh, uh, aerospace education in Hong Kong also. Mm. Okay, we have Quentin Parker with and us as maybe, well. Good yes, we should give Quentin Parker his, his, his full title, Director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research. Mm, mm. Good morning to you. Good morning. So how excited uh, are you by this development? On a scale of 1 to 10, probably about 11. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you think some of your students are going to... Yeah, I'm sure some of your students are going to... Oh, some, yes, some of your students going to... Uh, I've got one very keen um, person who's actually going to be interviewed by a uh, mainland uh, TV station uh, in the next couple of days about this very opportunity. He's, um, he's a PhD uh, imminent graduate in, in, in computing, but an engineer who's been working on CubeSats with us here at the University of Hong Kong in the LSR. And his eyes just lit up, you know, it's <laughs> so excited about this opportunity. And I think that's the key is the excitement that this opportunity is going to generate amongst our young people in this city, which I think is one of the most important things. It might attract them into STEM education more generally for the future. Because, you know, you're right, I heard you at the beginning, this is a catalyst. I see this as the, the mere apex event in what I think will be a, a massive trickle-down um, uh, engagement of this city, finally, with the rapidly emerging space economy, which, as, as you may know, by 2030 will be worth about 1.25 trillion US dollars. So you think you, you think you have a catalyst in terms of more involvement in the China space program or, or uh, other sort of um, activities internationally? Or both? Very good question. I think both. I think, uh, first of all, this opportunity is a mainland opportunity and it's uh, allowing, you know, the Hong Kong SAR for the first time. You know, it's uh, one country, two, two systems, and, and of course, under one country, in principle, uh, you know, anybody could have applied to enter into the uh, Chinese Taikonaut program, in principle, I would imagine. But now this is very explicit. And so, uh, you know, the first speaker um, from Hong Kong UST uh, said, I'm not 100% sure about whether that will lead to an actual candidate from Hong Kong participating. I actually think it will, personally, because why, why else make such a big song and dance about it? If you make such a big song and dance about something like this and say there's two posts available and eventually nothing happens, I think people will remember that and say, well, it's all bluff and bluster. 
But I think this is important uh, politically, it's important scientifically, it's important as a catalyst, and I think it's important for the city of Hong Kong. Let's go back briefly to the, the first speaker, Professor Yu, uh, because he has to go in just a moment. Professor Yu okay. from uh, HKUST. Um, Professor Yu, you, you said that um, you think that um, Hong Kong researchers have some advantages that will make them uh, particularly competitive in um, competing for these places. Is that correct? I think I, 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 did, I did not mean that. I only think that the Hong Kong research or uh, kind of uh, kind of space program or whatever things has kind of competitive kind of uh, capability with that. Yes. But, okay, in the case, let's turn it around. There, there are a lot of smart researchers in uh, many universities all the way across China. I mean, what chance do um, Hong Kong researchers um, stand then? Uh, Hong Kong education kind of system, including university and the research institutes, have lots of areas with kind of advanced, uh, unique advantage compared to other uh, kind of university around the kind of mainland, Macau, all these things. So we we can compete with them in uh, lots of area on that. Okay. Also, I agree to the uh, kind of second guess, and with this kind of uh, kind of uh, initiative, I say Hong Kong and Macau uh, uh, citizens can participate in this program. I think in that case, we have advantage on that. Okay, we're fortunate to have uh, three local institutions uh, represented on our panel this morning, uh, University of Science and Technology, uh, University of Hong Kong, and also the Education University, because uh, we also have with us uh, uh, Dr. Chan Manho, who's an associate professor there. Good morning to you. Hello, good morning. What sort of uh, attributes uh, do you think uh, the, the Space Agency is looking for? I mean, uh, we know about uh, uh, academic requirements and, and certain age and, and physical fitness requirements, but uh, what kind of candidates are they looking for? I think they need to uh, look for some uh, candidates which, uh, who has uh, uh, good in health and also they have a good physical uh, body and they have a good uh, mental uh, ability and because they have to ch uh, face a lot of challenge in in the space and also they need to tackle a lot of difficulties right during the mission therefore uh, they need to be uh, very mature in handling all these kinds of difficulties and challenges professor parker what would you think would be uh, hong kong's chances in this process I'd like to go back to your early question on that, actually, where you asked what are the advantages, does, does Hong Kong uh, have any advantages compared mm. to the mainland? Because we're only a city of 8.7 million or so, and you've got 1.2 billion or so in the mainland uh, with all those young people competing for such bases. But there's two spots. I mean, there's an intake of many more than two, but they've mentioned two spots for payload specialists for Hong Kong. But about, you know, the suitability, I mean, Hong Kong, small city, but big impact in tertiary education. It has a massive footprint in global education because we're hosting three universities in the top 50 in the world, including my university, which is in the top 20-odd, and, you know, and several others in the top 200. So in terms of the concentration of global uh, significant universities, we're, we're right up there. But it's not just that. It's that in this global city, the academics that are in our universities are very diverse. So we're getting academics from all around the world working in our universities. Now, I know in the mainland they do have um, academics from overseas in their universities, perhaps not in the concentrations that we have in this city. And so you've got global experts 
from around the world teaching our students. You can have talent anywhere, but it's how that talent is nurtured and trained and mentored and the environment in which all this learning happens that's important. So I think that's where our city has major advantages. You know, obviously also at my university, English is the, is the language that's spoken, and so the students coming through that system might have a slightly broader outlook than, than some others may have with exposure to um, different opinion and ideas, and that brings uh, um, interesting segues to creativity and different ways of thinking that can be extremely beneficial uh, in this kind of thing. So I think our students do have some advantages. I believe this is a real opportunity for Hong Kong, but not just in this apex event, which I think is, you know, like, uh, for me, the catalyst. It's what this means more broadly about, you know, Hong Kong's engagement in the global new space economy that's, uh, that's been emerging rapidly over the last few years in particular. I mean, our own city has, uh, you know, a Hong Kong Aerospace Technology Group has been going for about a year, a couple of satellites launched. Uh, you know, we have the Orion Astropreneur Space Academy, of which I'm a member, uh, which is uh, engage, trying to engage young people in STEM education and astropreneurship, which is like the space equivalent of entrepreneurship, <laughs> uh, to try to get, you know, the business side of things going. So I'm hoping that this is going to kickstart a greater government interest and engagement in this whole aerospace ecosystem, and that will promote investment and funding into our universities as well, uh, and things like this. So I think it's a very exciting time. Now with Professor Quentin Parker, the director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research, speaking to us earlier. It's now coming up to the nine o'clock news, and that means we have to take a short break very soon. But Best of Back Chat will be back afterwards. And when we return, we'll revisit our discussion on the suggestion of a baby bonus and also the cost of raising a child in Hong Kong. But before we get to that, here's the weather. Mainly cloudy and dry, sunny intervals later with highs of around 18 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh northerlies. The red fire danger warning is currently in force. And right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 15 degrees and the relative humidity is 63%. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to the Best of Back Chat with me, Janice Wong. In the next 25 minutes or so, we will look at the suggestion of a baby bonus to help address the city's low birth rate. But before we do that, let's take a look at the cost of raising a child in Hong Kong. A survey carried out by a local bank earlier this year found that on average, each child costs $284,000 per year, which works out to around $6 million in all up to the age of 22. Earlier, I asked Ho Lok Sang, director of the Pan Su Tong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University, what he thought of the figure. It really depends on how you spend the money, you know, because uh, raising a child doesn't mean that you have to go a particular way. You know, there's so, so many ways that you can do it. Some people send the kids to international schools that cause a lot. But uh, if you go to a local school, actually you don't have to pay, you know, all the way to uh, pre-university and even after university, the uh, chances that you can, you know, ample room, you know, for, for you to make a loan. And the loan um, uh, can be repaid over a long stretch of time. So it's actually not 
not as uh, difficult as uh, is uh, depicted, you know, by that particular survey. And um, I remember, I can tell you that uh, when I was small, um, I couldn't even imagine that I could learn an, a musical instrument, you know, because it would be so expensive, so cost. I, I, I even, I, I dared not ask my parents, you know, for for that privilege. But today, the government is providing a, lots of opportunities, you know. Uh, so I realize that uh, kids, you know, living in public housing and uh, relatively poor grassroots families, some of the kids do learn musical instruments. So, so I think uh, um, it is not really as dire as is de depicted by that particular survey. So, so don't be put off, you know, by that kind of uh, data. Right, Professor Ho. I have two uh, comments here from our listeners. Uh, this one is from Richard. He says, uh, your average Hong Kong parent isn't paying anywhere near this amount of money. However, anyone who sends their kids to an international school is. The 55% increase is probably a direct correlation to the ESF school fee increase since 2006, if not more. Highway robbery endorsed by the EDB. And I have another a message here from Ruslan. He says, uh, I guess if your child uh, um, goes to a private school or kindergarten, uh, take extra private tutoring classes, travel often with family and uh, school, also travel overseas, and you go for health checkups at private pediatricians, etc., then yes, it can cost that much. But it doesn't mean you can't raise a kid with less than that. And uh, that comment is from Ruslan. So I guess he has a point there. I mean, like you mentioned, the amount of money spent varies quite a a lot depending on the parenting style and the child's need. So, um, Professor Ho, why why are some parents spending so much more? I mean, what are they spending on now that they didn't used to spend? Well, the fact is that uh, a lot of the families actually have gone so much better off than before. So, if they can afford it, okay, because they have just one child or at most two, I think rarely, extremely rarely, do people have more than two kids. You know, and and that's why. Uh, they they spend you know all that they can you know <laughs> to to make the, the the child feel that he or she is very much valued in the family treasured you know like like a princess or a prince you know so so I think that kind of thinking uh, characterizes those Hong Kong middle class people you know when they have the means and they they would like to spend that kind of money to to show that they they love the kids. But um, I think this kind of thinking, and especially you know the uh, very materialistic kind of thinking, and uh, imagining that uh, spending more uh, is a demonstration of love and care, I think that has to be dumped. You know that kind of thinking is actually very damaging. You know for the development of the kids. So it's important for for the kids to know that no matter what. Uh, the, you know, people people can still make a mark, and most importantly, one has to achieve what they can. You know, given given whatever constraints that they fa that they face. Uh, how about you know, that's the that's a challenge in life. How about our highly competitive education system and the sort of mentality of uh, some teachers? I mean, you, you mentioned that um, uh, these uh, you, you can go to government schools for free, but outside those schools, you will almost always see tutorial colleges, won't you? Um, and uh, uh, in this competitive environment, uh, parents want what's best for their kids. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, can imagine that, their classes. That is a kind of thinking, you know. 
You see, the fact is that today, you know, the age to learning, there are plenty, lots of them, lots of them. You know, you have a lot of online classes that you can learn, you know, and it's amazingly effective, you know, if you take advantage of those. Of course, if you cannot afford a computer and you do not have the network, the, uh, I mean, the Wi-Fi and so on, then you, you could have a problem. But actually, I understand that there are lots of avenues uh, whereby, you know, uh, people from poor families can get access to a computer. Um, so, Ms. C, how much money do you think a grassroots family spends on uh, raising a child every year? Do you have an estimate? Uh, for those uh, low-income uh, uh, family or those uh, citizens family, their income is very low. Average, uh, they only have uh, around 2000 something uh, for the every month for the children so uh, it's impossible to have this kind of high expenditure uh, for the children right so so what do you think these uh, figures actually say about the uh, rich poor gap um, actually the gap between the uh, rich and poor is uh, getting bigger in, in Hong Kong because the salary is very low and then the this is the amount is uh, uh, also it's, it's low as um, it's lower than the poverty line and uh, especially in, in, in the past few years because of the pandemic, um, many families, they are unemployed or unemployed. So it's even more hard for them to, to bring up the children. And some of them, even they, actually they can afford three meals. And they, they need to skip meals in order to pay for the study expenditure of their children and the rent. So this is quite a hard time for the family. You, you say they need to skip meals to pay for the study of the children. Of course, these children will be going to government schools. There's, there's no need yeah, to pay yeah. any school but they fees. Need to pay, but... They need to pay for, the, uh, for example, the tutorial class or yeah. those. Um, they need to pay for the textbook or the school uniform and the subsidies not enough. Yeah, you mentioned you said they need to pay for tutorial colleges. Of course, it's not compulsory for them to pay for tutorial colleges. It, it's the, we've talked about this a lot this morning already. It's the competitive pressure, isn't it? They, they want their children to do as well as the other children, and they think they need to spend all this extra money, even if it means that um, they don't have enough money for food. Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. I just want to go to um, Mr. Quain for a moment. Um, Mr. Quain, is it, um, I mean, after listening to what uh, Ms. C has been saying and also what uh, Professor Ho was saying before, um, is, is it just Hong Kong that is uh, spending more and more money on kids or, or is it uh, similar, is there a similar trend in other places? I think, unfortunately, um, it's actually a global phenomenon. So we know that um, the cost of raising a child is increasing globally, and those costs are significant in other locations in Asia. Um, so if we just look at the cost of, again, this is a relatively small um, element to benchmark against, but if we look at the cost of international schools, um, globally, um, if we look at places such as Singapore, China, and so on, the costs for parents to send children to international schools in these locations are much higher than they are here in Hong Kong. Um, but we've also seen in other locations in the region where we, we talked about in depth um, this morning about the pressure that's put on children and therefore the need for them to go to tu tutorial classes and extra classes. That, again, is not something which is unique to Hong Kong. It's also common elsewhere. 
Um, South Korea, for example, is notorious for having um, very competitive um, education and therefore cramming schools. Japan is also very similar. Singapore is similar as well. And even globally now, so even in places such as the UK, which has historically taken a relatively, not necessarily a hands-off, but you know, a much more relaxed approach to children's schooling, you do see parents facing more pressure now. Um, enrolling their children, for example, in much more in the way of extracurricular activities, um, which are not necessarily designed specifically for to nurture the, uh, the child's growth, but more designed to make them much more competitive or attractive in the marketplace um, when they come to obviously um, graduate from either high school or university and then and then enter the workforce. That was Lee Quain, Regional Director for Asia at ECA International, and Silai Shan, the Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organization, speaking there to me and Danny Gittings. Now, low birth rate and aging population is a problem faced by many places around the world, including Hong Kong. And to help solve the problem, New People's Party suggested the introduction of a baby bonus. It said the government should offer a $20,000 payment to the family of every newborn. It should also offer a $50,000 subsidy to encourage people to have their eggs or sperms frozen for use at a later date. Jim Gold first asked New People's Party chairwoman Regina Ip how much help the subsidies would be. Well, it's just a token measure to um, signal the government's concern, you know, about the low birth rate and to uh, give offer uh, some comfort to couples having babies. Of course, it's very expensive to raise a child. Even at childbirth, some people spend a lot to hire wet nurse or that sort of thing, you know. So $20,000 is what we think is affordable by the government. Because if we have 35,000 births a year, it will cost the government about $700 million. And the FS just said he expects a budget deficit of $100 billion a yeah. year. Mm. Uh, good morning, Regina. Why do we need more people? We have a population crisis, Mike. You know, our life expectancy is increasing. It's uh, 85, you know, and uh, our population rapidly aging. And fertility is rapidly declining, continuously declining. It is now 0.77, you know. So I think we really need to um, encourage childbirths. And I recommended financial support for people to store their eggs of sperm because I think um, in a high-stress city like Hong Kong, people need more flexibility to plan. Um, to do family planning, particularly women. You know, women have a biological clock, and a lot of well-educated, well-qualified women, they get married late, you know. So I think it will it, we should encourage them to store their eggs early so that they can have more choice when they get married. Can't we plug the gap by bringing people in from other places? Couldn't we uh, allow more people to come and live in Hong Kong from outside? We are doing that, you know, we have a daily quota of 150, maximum of 150 one-way permit holders, that is immigrants uh, from mainland China. Uh, but that has been drying up. 
the quota was introduced by the British in the 1980s you know, for family reunion because there were a lot of cross-boundary marriages at that time. But I think the proportion of cross-boundary marriages is shrinking. And I'm aware everyone's got here. In the past three years, the, the daily arrivals have, uh, have dried up to about 50 a day. Are there, I mean, I, I'm thinking of looking after the elderly um, and you need generally younger people to do that. Could we bring in more nurses and social workers from, say, the Philippines or Indonesia? Well, we, we are not short of social workers. You know, the self-finance colleges are offering a lot of programs in social work. But we do need more nurses and care workers, you know. And um, they, the healthcare industry, you know, the elderly services industry claim they are short by 20% all the staff they need at frontline levels. And that's the one, that's one industry which is allowed to have imported health care workers. They already have imported care workers. I do support importing more health and medical care professionals. I fully support that. OK, well, stay with us, because we're also joined now on the line by Paul Yip, who's uh, Chair Professor of Population Health at uh, the University of Hong Kong's uh, Social Work and Social Administration Department. So good morning to you. Uh, good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. So, so um, financial incentives or financial support for families, uh, for the families of, of newborn infants, uh, um, is, that, is that a good way to go? Well, I think it's good to have, but, uh, uh, because I think as, um, we all know that raising a family in Hong Kong, it is quite expensive. But based on the international uh, experiences, I think there's a cash bonus, I think, given in Singapore and also in South Korea. The impact itself it is still quite limited because I think um, a small family, it seems to be a norm of this high-income society uh, already. So um, I think it's good to have, but I think if we really rely on this uh, so-called cash bonus, I think to try to uh, help to uh, increase the fertility rate, we might be disappointed. Yeah. And based on all the study, it suggests that I think we what we need is a more holistic support, not only the cash bonuses. I think we are talking about um, the family-friendly working environment, and what we're talking about the whole um, uh, the society itself. I think with the parents that they feel uh, that they can start their family here. Um, Regina, do you agree? Do you think we need a more holistic uh, approach to family-friendly policies? We, our party, recommended a whole package of measures, mm. not just financial support, um, flexible hours for professional women, um, reducing the, the time required for working women at the lower level to enjoy full labour benefits, you know, more daycare centers. You, we put forward a whole raft of recommendations. But uh, in big cities, um, in all big cities, uh, couples um, live under considerable pressure. So all the, all the more reason why you should help them to store the eggs or sperm so that they can have more flexibility and make use of science to produce babies at a later age. Um, Paul Yip, uh, is that a proposal that uh, you would support as well? Well, I think this proposal I think, has been mentioned, I think, in the uh, 
the strategic population policy, uh, I think, a few years ago. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I think it is good, uh, I think, to provide the support, I mean, for the individuals, I think, who have the aspiration, I mean, the form to have the children, I think, in their timing. But as I said before, now, I mean, this number is very small. I think we are talking about a few hundreds, right? But now we are talking about a reduction of the total number of babies from 50,000 now to 30-something thousands. So I think it is good, I mean, to give um, this support to the parents I mean, who aspire to be a parents, I mean, if they do have this uh, financial difficulties and give them uh, their support too. I mean, the Family Planning Association, I think, uh, which I'm um, executive member there, I mean, we always advise the parents, I think, they make their plan. I mean, uh, yes, I think we do um, uh, see the women who like to have the professional development, but at the same time, but do plan. I mean, do plan, do plan it well and and seek medical advice. And then uh, we always say that don't wait for too late, you know. I mean, even with the medical device itself, you know, it still might be difficult, I mean, to have a baby, you know. And that was Paul Yip, Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong, and New People's Party Chairwoman Regina Ip speaking there to Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Finally, let's look back at the Strive and Rise program, a pilot scheme to help lift youngsters out of intergenerational poverty. Under the initial plan, 2,000 Form 1 to Form 3 students will be offered a place on the one-year program. They'll be given allowances totaling $10,000 and be assigned a mentor from various sectors to help broaden their horizons and teach them valuable life skills. I asked Riswan Ula, a member of the Youth Development Commission, if the program was what he had expected. There obviously is uh, some difference in expectations, uh, but of course uh, yesterday when they... Uh, when they roll out uh, some details yesterday, uh, I got a better picture of uh, what they'd like to do. I mean, like, uh, as they mentioned, they'd like to, you know, broaden their horizon, the student self-confidence, and also, you know, the uh, outlook on life and uh, set goals for future and see how they can help students uh, to develop uh, that sense and strive for uh, social uh, mobility, like uh, going upward. So in this whole thing, I, I think there are two things we, we would probably need to look at. Uh, the first thing is, uh, you know, how we can really ensure the quality is there. Even though, like, let's say uh, it's a pilot program. Okay, I mean, we, we have to use a pilot mindset to look at the deliverables here because uh, if they have some good stories and some critical su success factors identified in the process, then it can only be you know, uh, uh, gear up further. Otherwise, it will just become a firework only for a year. So what's the evaluation system for this? How will they know if it's worked and in what ways will they... What are the criteria for evaluating it? Well, I think there are a couple of KPIs, some key performance indicators. For example, uh, whether the program is targeting the most needy one, even among the sub... Uh, uh, like the kids who are... Uh, below the poverty line, how are they going to identify those 2,000 students? Uh, because, like, uh, whether they are newly arrival, whether they are ethnic minority, or they are kids with some special educational needs, like, to, uh, to make sure to get a lot of experiences from this pilot program, I think there should be some strategic recruitment 
of these uh, cats from these sub, uh, divided units because only then those mentors and other uh, superstars they put in could actually make a difference to these groups uh, because schools might be doing all these things before but uh, they didn't have those resources and now with this good resource of uh, mentors so that identification of uh, the most needy is very in, uh, very important that recruitment process is something that needs to be revealed after one year and then second how is the process of formulating those targets between the mentor and mentee because i think financial incentive is not the most important aspect of the whole scheme is that process where the kids are also engaged in formulating their targets with the mentors and with the input they get over the 12 sessions from them and also over the 12 sessions from the superstars. And then the kids might have some moments of truth, which might be a turning point, making them believe that underprivileged kids can also break through the glass ceiling and aspire for change. Oh. And one more point, sorry, I just want to add. It's, you know, the labeling issue must be carefully taken because like uh yesterday we had a photo of those mentors but mentees i uh, i mean i'm sure kids of uh, underprivileged families they might not want to be uh in the footprint of media and all these things so and how they should be labeled and uh, whether the society views the same way these are things that uh, can be better taken care of. Anthony Wong, what do you think about the next phase of the scheme? How can this be a, a segue into something more sustainable? Yeah, the, the next phase, as I said, uh, I think it, if, it, if we want it to be more sustainable, I think we have to go beyond the mindset of uh, individualizing these uh, students because in all the mentorship relationship, uh, despite uh, that this kind of relationship may help, but the fact is that, as uh, the government is also aware, and many other stakeholders in the society are aware, that uh, these people living in the subdivided units, both their parents and the children, are actually not quite socially connected. I mean, in the program, if there is an occasion or there's a group sessions uh, for these young people to get together, and then somebody facilitating them to communicate with each other. And then in that companionship, they can gain uh, confidence. They can gain more support, mutual support. That could, you know, really uh, enhance their confidence. And if these kind of stories, we have to go beyond looking at them as beneficiaries. They have the potential. I, I, I'm coming from a very different angle of looking at these uh, families. Although they are quite deprived at the moment, but I think they have different talents and they have different things. And if we can, uh, through this program, we can tease out those important elements and then we build a stage for them to shine, for them to share with the community. They can speak to the community. They can speak to other stakeholders in the society and how they strive for success. And in the mentorship program, if we can engineer more easily accessible, successful experience for the students, and these kind of uh, points and story could be, you know, told in the community and heard by the en entire public. And this kind of work could, you know, really drive itself to a more sustainable and impactful uh, 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 program. Uh, just now we talk about how we should re evaluate. I, I, I think in addition to evaluate how much each mentor, mentee 
has benefited from the program. The, another important indicator or another important uh, component to evaluate is that how this program is uh, really publicized in the society in a way that is able to inspire more people, to inspire people living in the subdivided unit and also people who are trying to help these people, uh, families living in the subdivided unit. And then you can, you know, bring up a new campaign or movement to to drive the entire society to solve this big problem of intergeneration poverty. I think this is the, the kind of vision that I really hope that this program could achieve. That was Anthony Wong, Business Director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service, speaking earlier to me and Anna Fenton. Best of Back Chat will be back tomorrow with one last episode, where we will revisit our discussions on topics related to arts and culture. Now, here's the weather. Mainly cloudy and dry, sunny intervals later with highs of around 18 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh northerlies. The red fire danger warning is currently in force. And the outlook, fine and dry with cool mornings in the next couple of days. Temperatures rising gradually over the New Year holidays. And uh, right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 15 degrees, relative humidity 65%. The primary health care blueprint has been launched. The government is devoted to foster disease prevention and early treatment. Connecting community health care services, district health centers across the 18 districts help you live a healthy life and be aware of health risks early. The blueprint encourages the family doctor for all concept to keep track of your health, manage chronic diseases and avoid complications. Let you enjoy a healthier and quality life. Visit primaryhealthcare.gov.hk to learn more. It's now 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. The foreign ministry in Beijing says COVID travel measures imposed by foreign countries must be scientific, moderate, and should not affect the normal flow of individuals. The United States has become the latest country to order COVID tests for travelers from China, including its special administrative regions. A series of relaxations to COVID measures have taken effect with international travelers no longer compelled to take PCR tests on arrival in Hong Kong and quarantine abolished for close contacts of patients. A University of Hong Kong epidemiologist, Benjamin Cowling, told RTHK he doesn't think the move will make the COVID situation worse. And the government says full-day face-to-face classes will resume in phases in February. Education Secretary Christine Choi said secondary schools